In this episode, I'm joined by Paul Linden, PhD, an Aikido educator who has worked on peacemaking between ethnic groups and with victims of severe trauma. We learn about Paul's early days in the martial arts and how a lack of any coordination forced him to completely re-engineer his physical learning process. We discuss Paul's precise use of language, his love of operational definitions, and the remarkable insights he has gained from living with Parkinson's disease for 17 years. Paul discusses his work in Germany, comments on multi-generational trauma in the descendants of both Holocaust survivors and German war criminals, and leads me through a series of live exercises to unlock personal power. Paul also gives his expert advice on the protests and riots occurring in America, including how to act effectively and what he would do if he was in President Trump's shoes. So without further ado, Paul Linden. Paul Linden, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's, it's nice to be here with you. So you began training Aikido in 1969, but I'd like to start a little bit before then. Can you give a sense of your general background growing up and how it was eventually that you became exposed to Aikido? Well, growing up, I was a bookworm, not an athlete, was also on, on a desert island with my books and uh, didn't really connect to much or to many people at that point. And when I got to college, I had been keeping um, a journal that I called a philosophical journal with interesting thoughts. And I found myself becoming a philosophy major. By the end of four years doing philosophy, I realized that I could talk for 2,000 or 3,000 more years and still not get any concrete results. I didn't have 2,000 years to wait. So I jumped out of philosophy having written a bachelor's thesis which said the most said that most of the philosophical problems are personal itches that the philosopher scratches cognitively they were, you've got to be a little bit weird to wonder if the floor is really there but um, i wasn't quite that weird so i jumped into experimental psychology and so i was at the university of california at berkeley and i walked down the wrong aisle of the bookstore. I meant to get something about brain control of biological something or other. And there was a bunch of books on meditation. And I thought, gee, those don't fit in this section because all the psychologists were trying so hard to be scientists. They wouldn't do anything like meditate. So I looked and there was a course being taught by Robert Frager, who was a psychologist who had just come back from Japan. And it was a course on meditation. So I took it, having just started to meditate. And he kept talking about Aikido. And I, my only take on that during the Vietnam War was, oh, come on, give me a break. Who, who needs to spend time learning how to break people's arms? Then he showed a film of the man who created Aikido the last day of class. And my jaw dropped and something said, you got to do that. I didn't know why or what, but I showed up to the dojo the next day and never stopped. I didn't know I was allowed to try it. I didn't think I was going to try it. I just wanted to be that way. And it didn't occur to me I could stop which I couldn't, obviously. So um, I've spent the years learning how to do Aikido in a Western analytic, non-athletic body, very different from the Japanese teaching methods, which repeat, repeat, repeat it, get it in the body, not in the intellect. And I have just, in the last couple of weeks, understood what that process was. It's the quickest way to turn out effective fighters for the castle and the lord but if they if i had been there i would have taken as i have taken 50 years to get it and i'd show up at the at the castle and say i'm ready 
And I would say, you, you missed the war by 40 years, Turkey. So I, I realized why it's trained that way. But it also leads to the inability, I think, to apply it outside of combat. Because you drill the movements into your body. You don't have any overriding understanding of principles, algorithms. So you can use it only in the way it's, it's designed to be used. And I couldn't. And so along the way, I found it was possible to break it down into algorithms that were simple, concrete, empirical language. I can teach people now to do things that took me 20 or 30 years in, in 10 or 15 minutes because I've used the analytic Western approach. And uh, it's not quite the same learning. And it's very functional in a very different way. So I've, I've come upon a process that I had to use for myself. And I found ways to condense it and make it quicker and simpler. So now I can teach in, in you know, basic workshops, stuff that took me 40 years. And in a not so basic workshop, stuff that took me 50 years. But it's what I've been trying to do, transfer it where it'll do some good instead of letting it just be movement in, in my own experience. I want to ask you a bit about that or a lot about that, actually. But sure. before I do, uh, what sort of topics were you into growing up? You said you were a bookworm. What kind of books were you reading? And what, uh, that, that, I guess that might be a long list. And growing up as you did or going to university in, in the 60s, uh, were you involved with the psychedelics or other aspects of the 60s counterculture? Okay, I, when I was about uh, third year in, in four-year high school, I got thoroughly tired of basic French class. Bonjour, je m'appelle Paul, comment allez-vous? And you say it and repeat it. So I dropped out of French class, got a dictionary, and proceeded to read all the interesting books I've heard titles of in French. I improved my SAT scores by 400 points in one year. So that's unheard of. I went into the French teacher's office, I slapped the paper down on the table and said, see, this is the way you learn French. Give them something interesting to read. So I was reading, I read all kinds of things. The, one, the only French title, let's see, there was one, a book of Voltaire's stuff. And then I chanced across the, the original tr French copy of the Marquis de Sade's book. And that was very strange. Um, what else did I read? I don't know, just lots of stuff. But um, how did I make the transition into Aikido? It was... If you compare engineering to theoretical physics, Aikido is to philosophy. So instead of thinking philosophy, I found that I could do it. After a while, I found that I could do it. And um, there was more in your question, but I got distracted. What was more, please? Uh, yeah, I asked you what sort of things you were into reading-wise when you were oh, younger. Yeah, and the, oh, yeah, and the, and the hippies. Well, I did very little in the way of psychedelics primarily because people would come back from these really groovy acid trips and tell me things that I knew when I was 12. I, if they had to take drugs to get where I was going when I was 12, I didn't really want to know where I would go if I took those drugs, so I didn't. And along the way, I guess I felt that anything the drugs can do that's positive, I ought to be able to do it's my same brain. I ought to be able to figure it out, so watch. I can now settle the tremors. I can move the affected part with just a little tremor. When I do Aikido movements, there's very little tremor. I can stand, I can do a lot of things because I've 
taking care to understand how I do them. So I didn't really hate Ashbury, which I went to a few times, and that was the place in San Francisco, the place. I was grotty. It was kids hanging out on the street corners, panhandling. Nobody had any positive way of connecting with life. They knew what they didn't like, but they couldn't build what they did like. And so I've spent my life trying to create the tools so that we can build what we need. And I've found ways that, well, there was a, an Aikido seminar in Cyprus about 13 years ago. I was one of, the, one of the teachers in the course. We had Americans and Iraqis, Israelis and Palestinians, Greeks and Turks practicing together, which was marvelous because they discovered that they liked practicing with their enemies. But I wasn't teaching Aikido. I was teaching what I derived from Aikido, which was a class on genocide. And I started off with the question, you've come to the negotiation table because you're convinced that war just doesn't make it anymore. And the guy sitting opposite you killed, tortured and killed your brother. What does your body do? How will that affect your capacity to negotiate peace? How can you change that so you can negotiate peace? And they understood what I, was at, what I was after because they were all sitting there with their enemies. And that's what I've been trying to do. Um, how did I relate to the hippies? Uh, I basically, well, sitting over there on the bookshelf is a copy of the Whole Earth Catalog, which I don't know if you know it or have ever seen it, but it was a catalog of catalogs. It was the precursor to the internet. When people wanted to know how to get back to the land and make soap, they turned to the chapter on making soap and it would give five catalogs on how to do that. So I was a hippie in a sense, but without the drugs and without the, the wasted energy of that. I did go to hear Big Brother and the Holding Company live and Paul Butterfield and Company live. So I had a lot of nice memories of the music, but that was different. Not everyone listening will know what Aikido is. I think all martial artists will know because it's it's a very famous martial art. But could you give a sense, a bit of a sense of the sort of martial arts Aikido is? Sure. If I took hold of your wrist, I grabbed your wrist and said, don't let me pull you toward me, what would you do? Yeah, I'd pull back. Of course, that's the natural response. But it's difficult and, and takes a lot of work. Why not walk forward faster than I'm pulling? I didn't say, don't go forward. That's probably what you heard. You heard me say, don't come toward me. I didn't. I said, don't let me pull you forward. And so Aikido is based on that idea that if you cooperate, you can do better than if you don't. Now, there's another example. If two people were holding your arms, one on each side, pulling in different directions, I guess the person who gets the biggest piece can make a wish. How would you deal with that attack? I would try to pull my arms in towards myself so they couldn't pull me apart. Now that's what everybody does. How about reframe it? Hey, let's you and me pull on him. You turn and pull with the guy and then you've got the one attacker's strength added to yours. You see what I'm saying? Cooperation is not something big in our species. We don't do it that well, except when we go to war. But um, it's the basis of Aikido. Now, a lot of people do Aikido in a way that um, well, let, let me put it this way. What is a hammer for? What is the purpose of a hammer? To strike a nail. No, that's the purpose of the person who built and used the hammer. The hammer itself has no purpose. It just is a piece of metal and wood. You see what I'm saying? It's a linguistic shorthand to say hammers are for striking nails. 
hammer, as I use it for striking nails, you might turn, um, stir your breakfast cereal with it. So what is the purpose of Aikido? Most people would say the purpose of Aikido is to not fight. And I agree, but how do you do that? And I distinguish between force, physical force, and violence. Violence, I think of as the desire to hurt or diminish another human being. Force is just pushing or pulling or twisting. Can you exert lethal force without being violent? I think so. Imagine if you were in the woods and um, a dog came up to you, a beautiful dog, and had rabies. Would you pet it? Probably not. Would you shoot it? Yes, probably you would if you had a gun, because otherwise it'll die a terrible death and, and infect other people and other animals. Would you hate it? No, you wouldn't. I hope not. You'd feel very so you'd feel sorrowful and pity and compassion, but you'd have to kill it. I wouldn't call that violence. I would call that destructive and needful, but not violent. So Aikido is nonviolent, and many people mean that should not encompass any force. If it's nonviolent, you should be dancing with your partner and, and not hurt him. Well, yes, that's true. You shouldn't hurt your partner in practice, but there are times when you have to break something that somebody is offering to you, like a knife hand or whatever. And I think Aikido, as a spiritual practice, so to speak, has to embrace violence, not yours, but the attackers. Because if I come at you as an attack, I'm ready to hit you and hurt you, and you can't deal with that feeling, you can't, you haven't really done your meditation, not Aikido as a meditation. If you want to be able to um, protect yourself or exert force in a way that isn't violent, you have to prepare for that. You have to study it for a long time because it's flat out contrary to human nature. But we can also fly, not this way with our arms, but with airplanes. So I think of Aikido as a technology for teaching the body not to hate while dealing with whatever degree of force is made necessary. And if you don't hate and if you feel kindness, you probably won't have to fight much. But uh, a lot of people think Aikido is a martial art, and it is, but they don't define what a martial art is. So un, uh, tacitly, they're saying a, a martial art must be able to work to, to break and kill. And not necessarily. It could be learn, a way of learning not to break and kill. And the purpose is different, and that means that the, um, you have to evaluate it differently. So if you want Aikido as breaking and killing, you can do it that way. But you'd, ha you'd have to say, I have a different purpose in using these movements, and so I'll structure the movement somewhat differently. So a lot of martial artists think Aikido isn't a martial art because they don't take time to, the, to define their terms, as any good philosophy major would. You, you gave me a series of uh, examples there, asked me a series of questions about pulling and in different directions right. and so on. And now you're making the, uh, this point about the difference between violence and force. And why is it that these distinctions don't come naturally if they're so much more effective? I don't, I can't answer why questions. I can only answer what questions. Why? I don't know. I wasn't there when they drew up the specs for the species, but uh, it may be cultural and maybe any number of things, but um, it takes work to learn to do things well and right and compassionately. It takes no work at all to become angry and I don't know why, but that's what that's it. That that's what we have. These ideas come to a head 
in areas like your work with abuse recovery and in peacemaking, right. which I'd like to come to. But you said you, you you've also said I heard you say on uh, Mark Walsh's Embodiment podcast, you said that you used to be a very angry person, but yes. that now you are kind. Can you talk yeah. about why it was that you were so angry and what procedurally you did to uh, to change that? Yeah. Well, I don't know. It seemed like a better thing to do. I didn't know I, I didn't know I was going to do it or that I was doing it until I got fairly well into it. Why was I angry? Uh, I don't want to go too deeply into that, but I was raised in a way which left me in isolation and uh, solitary confinement in a sense. And when I started Aikido, I remember people, my first class over 50 years ago, I don't remember too many of the others specifically, but the first one I remember, everybody said to me, Paul, the other left foot, move the other left foot. And it took me quite a while to figure out what they meant. It wasn't natural to me. I, and I remember saying to one partner, I know I'm supposed to go with you, but what do I go with? And the only thing I could think of was go with the movement. Now, that is not how it's usually taught. You're shown the technique. I don't recall anybody ever saying, go with the movement. They didn't do that. Or they did it, but they didn't say it that way, maybe. So I spent a few years sensing the movement. I got pretty good. I could tell when a person grabbed me where they were going to start moving, what their next intention would be. I could feel the, the micro movements of the muscles getting ready to do those movements. And so I was teaching that way. And then one day I noticed that when people were grabbed, they would look down at the grab and they would lose balance in the direction that they were looking. So I said, don't tip your head. It's like a basketball full of oatmeal. It's heavy. It'll drag you down. So they didn't. They still lost balance. Then I watched, and I noticed they looked down, but they kept their head level. I said, don't look down. Your eyes are obviously as heavy as the rest of your head. And they looked straight out, and they still lost balance. And I couldn't think of anything else. And then finally, I realized they were thinking down, and that moved their muscles in that direction. So I spent a number of years going to the dojo when no one else was around, walking back and forth the length of the room, feeling this spot wishing to go there, this spot wishing to go there. I basically focus on every spot on my body, trying to create pathways through space and add the pathways and see what would happen. And so I got fairly adept at doing that. And that was when I realized that um, I had developed enough body awareness so I could, I could feel that when people corrected me, my basic feeling was, don't, don't give me any of that. I know what I'm doing. Leave me alone. Let me practice, which put a severe cramp in the data pipeline, as you can imagine. So I, I figured out that I, that was something I needed to change. And what I don't know is why it became so obvious to me that I should change it in my body, not in my mind, but it did. So I set, set about doing a lot of exercises based on these pathways through space. And I basically discovered that negative feelings cramped you and twisted you. And positive feelings, kindness, et cetera, et cetera, opened your body, opened your perception, opened your movement. So I figured that if I was going, if I was going to learn a fighting art, I had to be kind and perceptive, right? That's very, fairly obvious after 10 or 20 years. And I set about going in that direction very deliberately. And then I took a workshop with 
Stephen Levine, and um, he taught a, 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 an exercise on heart. Think of something that makes your heart smile. And I realized that that was the missing key. In Aikido, it's hara, hara, hara. Ground yourself, feel your flow of energy and power. And so I added the heart to that. I'd already been doing some breathing exercises I developed for opening all the spots. And then I put this in and it became very, very evident very quickly that the nicer I felt toward the attacker, the better I could fight. Not that I would have to fight because I was feeling pretty nice and didn't, didn't, I could get rid of a lot of the causes of fighting. Not that I was ever in much of a fight, but so I basically learned to, con to construct a body that was open, soft, welcoming, and I found that very much improved my Aikido. So that's the direction I've gone, and I'm continuing to do that. When a body like that that you developed is under threat or is threatened by somebody, let's say somebody is, wants to attack you or in some sort of a way, physically or otherwise, does that body have the usual or typical responses of defensiveness or aggression or contraction and so on, which you then counteract or alter, or do, do those responses not arise? Yes. <laughs> yes, to both. But no, they arise. There's always something that will blow you out of the water. The universe is very kind that way. If you've gotten able to lift 100 kilos, it'll send you 150. Very nice for your progress. Um, I could sum it up by saying, during one period of intense learning, I realized that life is a good news, bad news joke. The good news is, is that through pain and suffering, we gain wisdom. The bad news is that there's more good news coming. So there's always something that you can test yourself with. But let me give you an example. I think Parkinson's is my best attacker. Wherever I am, it goes, I can't, can you see me here? Okay, wherever I go, the Parkinson's is with me. It, I tremor when the meds run down, but if I took only the meds and didn't do the Aikido and the meditation, I wouldn't be able to do much. But here I am, 17 years into Parkinson's. I can stand pretty much on one foot, except when I'm talking about it, of course. I can move, I can do things. So the Parkinson's, when I first was diagnosed, I remember driving back from the doctor going, I was in shock. And my basic feeling was, oh my God, Parkinson's. And what I did was I spent quite a number of uh, days uh, going, Parkinson's, ah, Parkinson's, ah. And I managed to change my body's response, my response to the Parkinson's because it wasn't helping me to feel shocked and angry. So I changed myself to, so that I could feel that it was my, my personal attacker always with me to give me constant meditation opportunities. What were the first symptoms of your Parkinson's? And I'm curious if you could, if there's any more to say about that initial period of diagnosis and the way you changed your attitude there. Mm -hmm. The first symptoms were very slight tremor. I went to a doctor and he said, it's possibly Parkinson's, but it's too slight. It might be other things as well. And he said, in a couple of years, you'll know. And so I waited a couple of years and I knew. And the way they... There's no real test for Parkinson's, or there wasn't at that time. Um, the way they found out whether it was indeed Parkinson's, they'd give you Parkinson's medication, and if it's still the tremors, then it was Parkinson's. So I resisted taking the drugs for as long as I could, and then I thought, well, I'm going to shake myself to pieces. Can't be worse than being a druggie again. 
or sort of for the first time. Um, so I took the drugs and they helped, but they weren't enough. And the rest of what I was doing was crucial. I ride a bike. I hardly ever drive a car. I run every day. I do Aikido, except when there's a coronavirus interdiction on the dojo, which is a drag and a half. But um, yeah, I've been doing what I have been doing, and it seems to be working. Was there anything more to say about the initial period? Not really. I just, the tremors were there. I dealt with them. If I hated the tremors, see, I just think of it and I start. If I feel kind towards my tremors and, and myself, I settle down. So I learned not to hate Parkinson's. Sounds like the title of Dr. Strangelove, How I Learned to Love the Bomb. Your initial reaction to diagnosis like Parkinson is, as, as you said, anger, perhaps some fear. And you're switching to kindness and so on, changing the channel in the way you're relating to the disease. Is there a danger or how do you avoid suppressing or denying those negative feelings? I don't suppress or deny them. It's a good question. People often, well, I was just watching a movie about the, uh, some survivors of the Holocaust many years later, going back to Auschwitz and such. And there was one woman who embraced one of the guards who was there. She, he came back, so in a way, he came back too. And rather than hate him, she embraced him. And I uh, was thinking of another movie where something like this was described. This woman was 105, classically trained pianist, still sharp as a tack, playing lovely piano. And uh, she'd lost all of her family at Auschwitz. And the interviewer said, you must, have, you must hate the Germans. And she said, no, if I hated the Germans, I'd be the one living in hatred. So it's not that you suppress it. If you suppress it, the more you push it down, the more it pushes up. You just acknowledge it and change it in your body. That sounds as though I'm denying, denying the emotions. If you deny them, it won't work. You have to expose yourself to the emotions after you have enough tools to deal with them. And then you gradually change them. If you jump in right away, this is very much, I think, what some people experience in talk therapy. You talk about the, the assault and you're practicing being a victim of the assault. If you can first learn the power and the, and the compassion, then talk about it without letting your body go into the natural but negative feelings, then you're changing your habits of thought and feeling and you're not re-traumatizing yourself. So I don't, you, I don't think you can suppress, well, you can, I guess you can suppress feelings and you wind up like that. The only, the only person I think who's really managed to suppress all feelings has rigor mortis. He doesn't have anything left to feel. But uh, I think if you try to not feel something, you're, you're gonna lose. You have, to, you have to feel something, you can't dig a hole in the water. If you just try not to feel, what are you going to feel instead? If you try to cultivate compassion and stability, then you've got something you're trying to do rather than I'm trying not to do anything. It doesn't work that way, I don't think. In your view, what is power? Compassion. What is compassion? Power. And you okay. also use the word stability. And, and how does one acquire those tools? Okay. Um, would you stand up, please? You'll notice I can't define things verbally. I have to define things concretely. 
Now, as you stand there, feel your breathing, feel your shoulders, feel your stomach, feel your chest, feel your throat, feel your legs. And can you say a word which summarizes for you some pain or injustice, something that really hurts to think about? Can you say something of that sort? One word. Anger. What do you do in your body when you say that word? I slightly contract my stomach and my pelvis tilts forward ever so slightly. Mm -hmm. Well, would that make you more or less stable if somebody were to push on your shoulders? Less stable, I think. Right, okay. So our, result, our, our way of getting ready to deal with a problem is to make ourselves less powerful, to deal with it, less able. Yeah. So what would happen if you let your belly plop loose, if you let your throat and tongue hang loose, and you continue to breathe? without particularly breathing in any named way, just breathe in and out the traditional way. What does that do to your body, all of that? More, if you want, centered in the body, I feel uh, more stable within my body. Not so reactive. Yes, that is a definition of stability. Is it physical or psychological or emotional? I'll, I'll save you the effort. Yes is the right answer. I think it's all of them, yeah. My favorite joke is, what's the difference between a duck? And the answer is, the one leg is shorter than both of the other one. I tell that joke whenever anybody says, it's psychological or physical. There's just one duck there. It's all the same, but we have different languages, different ways of speaking about aspects of it. And what about the compassion part and the power part? Okay. Power is... It, it takes two people to teach power because you've got to feel the pressure on you and feel the degree of resistance and ease whether you're doing it well or not. But I can teach you the compassion part easily. What Can you think of something that you could say one word about that makes you feel happy and joyful and protective and friendly? What, what happens in your body when you do that? I smile. I feel quite uh, good energy. I feel quite energized, actually. Okay, good. Let me get something. I have one right over here now. Yes! When I throw this yes at the screen, what do you do in your body, if anything? It made me laugh, actually. Okay. Yeah. And what else? Anything else? Let's think. I, I laugh, but also in a little bit did contract. Yes. Yeah, I contracted my torso. Reflex. Even though you know that I couldn't hurt you with a tissue, even if I were in your presence, and certainly not from this distance, the body sees it as an attack and, com and compresses and contracts. Can you think of that thing that made you smile and feel good inside? Keep thinking of it. Yes! What happens now? The contraction didn't occur. Right, okay. Think of something that you really hate, that you want to change, that you, you're going to fight for. No! What happens? <laughs> yeah, I got the contraction again. Yeah. It's not that you're getting used to being attacked with a tissue. If you set yourself being ready for fighting and compressing and tensing, you will react that way. And if you set yourself for compassion and softness, you won't. Or at least you'll, you'll have a chance of not reacting in the more normal human way. So what mobilizes a boundary, say a personal boundary, standing up for yourself, for instance, if not some kind of inner recoil that is the, uh, the thing that one tracks to, to say, hang on, there's an infraction happening here? Okay, let me ask a question. If I were to come up and offer to hit you in the head with a two-by-four board, uh, 
Would would you have to experience it to know you didn't want that to happen? Would you have to feel fear to know it wasn't good for your head? You can you'll know that if somebody's attacking you, it's not good for you, and that can go on independent of whether your body contracts and becomes less able to deal with it. If you study this stuff, which I admit is a weird thing to do for 50 years, you'll learn a lot of things and be sensitive to a lot of things that may escape many people. Like what you just felt, felt that when you're angry, the attack seems more attackish. One of the things that I, let's see if this will work. Okay, I don't have much space. Watch me walk, please. And aside from this tether, when you watch me walk, I guess you don't see too much. I'm just walking back and forth. Get angry at something else, please. Not me, not the interview, but something else. Now, how does that change the appearance of my walk? Does it? It seems a little more speedy and, uh, what would the word be? Speedy and sharp, I think, yeah. Spiky. Yes, was, right. I didn't change anything that I was aware of. I certainly did not do anything on purpose to make myself look different. I was just toodling along. But when you're angry, I look more attackish, more hostile. See what I mean? So it's, it's very difficult to be in the midst of violence without letting it enter your body. Yes, that's fascinating. Let's talk a bit about your work in abuse recovery. One of the things that's often said about being an abuse survivor or having someone who has experienced trauma in a certain sense is it can very much affect the way you perceive the world, which is basically the theme you're bringing up here. Can you talk about how you began working in abuse recovery and what that journey was? And then I have several questions, if you don't cover it, about about the specifics of your approach. Sure. I was walking across a parking lot in Columbus, Ohio, where I live. This woman stopped me and said, you don't walk like anybody I've ever, I've ever seen. Turns out she and I had been in graduate school in the same time period, but totally different tracks. But occasionally she, she'd seen me walking through, through the halls. And so I told her that I'd at that point, I was what, about 30, 35 years ago. I'd been doing Aikido, maybe 25 years, 20 years. And I told her what I did. I taught self-defense and I taught movement as such. And she said, would that help survivors of abuse? I said, I don't know. I've taught self-defense, but I don't know that I've ever taught a person who has been abused. So she sent me six people to start a group. Within 10 minutes, it was, aha, this is what I've been training myself for. I can make a difference here. Everything I train myself in, Aikido, et cetera, et cetera, even my love of the Pogo comic strip, an old comic strip in, in the American newspapers, I used that. I used the, the, the type of humor. I used everything in service to these particular clients. Um, if I was teaching a golfer, for example, I didn't need everything. I just needed the swinging, the physical stuff. So I was fascinated and I realized that I could change the world by doing this. And at the time, it was I wasn't so precise or brief about it, but I, it worked and I, I started doing it. And more and more, I kept doing it. Um, when I first was working with them, one of the topics that comes up all the time is empowerment and forgiveness. Maybe that's two topics. But um, what is empowerment? A lot of people think that if you 
hit a couch with a with a tennis racket, that's empowerment. Or you stand and push on the walls, that's empowerment. I think that's body awareness of how you create certain amount of power, but it isn't empowerment. If somebody came to a therapist, a verbal therapist for work on fear of water because they had nearly drowned, they you could do a lot of work, productive, crucial work on fear of the water. But if that's the end of it, you've turned out a healthy victim just waiting for another drowning opportunity. Somebody has to teach them to drown, to, to swim, and swim not with gritted teeth, but with joy in the medium. So that is that became something that was very clear to me. You can't just teach people to grit their teeth and get through it. You have to teach them what will give them real power, which is the ability to fight and win. Now, that is the end of a long process. I don't do that the first day. I have to teach people how to feel and how to feel this, 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 and that. And then I'll have them say one word, uncle, and I have them track what happens in their body. Now, if they keep doing what they did when their uncle did it, um, they will continue being traumatized and weak. If they cannot do what their body is inclined to do and instead say, uncle, uncle, if they can say it without traumatizing themselves, then they're starting to gain some power. I had a woman who came to me because her therapist wanted her to work on forgiveness. Now, I don't know what everybody else means by forgiveness, and it doesn't really matter. What I mean by it is the ability to let go of the hatred that the, the perpetrator so richly deserves, because it doesn't do you any good to hate him or her. Um, so I had this woman, and she said, you, you, don't, you know what that son of a bitch did to me. I'm not going to forgive him. So I said, watch. I took a four-foot stick, gave her one, gave me one and said, hit my stick in, in the anger with which you'd like to hit the guy. And she hit it. I said, I'll show you what I can do when I hit it with, with a spirit of kindness. I cracked her stick in half. And she looked at me and said, if I can hit the son of a bitch that hard, I'll love him. See, love is stronger. But in our culture, everybody knows that, except when it counts. You don't catch Americans or many other people, I guess, saying, oh, my, look what they did. I'm going to forgive them and control what they did, but you don't have to hate them. You just have to control them. Hatred is obviously more powerful and more useful than love, except when you test it in the body, it doesn't work. So I worked more and more with that. That was the, the first thing that I had to do was to tell people, show people that if you hated the person who hurt you, you were abusing your own body in a way. I wouldn't say the word abusing, but you were, you were using your body in a way that reduced your power and increased your pain, which is clear contrary to what everybody thinks. You've got to be powerful and hit the guy. He deserves it. He may deserve it, but you don't have to hit him. You can do whatever you need, but you don't have to hate him. So I often say you can hit if you need, but never hate. So I, that was very clear to me that most other approaches weren't teaching the physicality of compassion and self-defense and boundary setting. So as I did that, I got more and more deeply understanding of the, the problem of abuse. And I realized it applied to almost everything. Um, one of my students is a house inspector. He fell off a roof about five meters down to the cement driveway. And he came out of it without a scratch. Well, he had one little scratch on his left arm, but he didn't injure anything, which he was amazed by. 
his body took over and did the, the falling that we're taught in Aikido, and he, it succeeded. So uh, there's all kinds of ways in which this approach of cooperation instead of antagonism can help in a lot of different areas of life. But you have to study it and work with it. And that was the thing that I found was missing in most other training approaches. They didn't deal with power. A lot of abuse survivors push away their power because they don't want to be perpetrators. They'd rather be victims. And I can, that's actually a, a good, morally okay stance. If I were going to be either a perpetrator or a victim, I would rather be a victim and not hurt anybody else. But it's problematic at, at the least. So that was a thing that was different. And as I went farther and got better at my Aikido, the other thing that was different is I worked with the micro-movements in the body. Uh, for example, I had a, a woman come to me. She was a nurse, and every time she lifted a patient, she tore her back apart. She couldn't lift in, a, in an ergonomically correct manner. So I watched her move. I gave her a piece of steel pipe, not long, but it was heavy. And I said, lift this on your right hand, now lift it on your left. And she realized that she was right-handed, but she couldn't lift it with her right hand. It was weak. I said, why is it important that you can lift with the left and not with the right? And she immediately, her eyes went like that. And she said, oh, after my divorce, my ex-husband attacked me from the right with a crowbar. I put up my hand to protect myself, and it didn't work, and he raped me. So I said, every time you try to exert power, you're replaying the, the moment of powerlessness. Let's teach you how to deal with the, the, the crowbar, and then you can let go of that instance. So I showed her how you don't go against it. You certainly don't block it in Aikido. You go with it, and in doing so, you open the person up, take their balance, and can throw them. After she did that, she heaved a big sigh, and she was done with that movement. She, she kept trying to do it every time she felt power, and she kept failing until she was able to do the movement the way it needed to be done, and then she was done. So I think that, does that give an, an idea of how I work and why? Certainly, yeah, it does. Let me throw some other questions at you in sure. that area then. So one of the things about abuse that, uh, that I think is very tricky is, well, two things really, but one of them is that, uh, let's say in the case of something like childhood sexual abuse, mm -hmm. the, um, consequences or the coping strategies after having been abused say, at a very young age can be quite pervasive through the through mm -hmm. the person such that right. that an awful lot of development has happened since the injury since since the uh, trauma has happened or maybe in conjunction with it happening how do you address trauma that occurred very early in development and has subsequently woven itself quite pervasively through the way a person uh, perceives things through how a person reacts to things and so on and so forth yes Good question. Um, if a Martian landed its spaceship on your front lawn and said, no, I don't want to see the president or the king or something, I want to ask you, what are human emotions? We, we get your TV up on Mars, and we don't have emotions. So we don't understand a lot of the stuff on the TV. I've been sent to find out. What are human emotions, please? How would you answer? That's very interesting. How would I answer? To a Martian, then, I would probably say, biochemical responses in the body uh, interpreted through the mind uh, developed evolutionarily to ensure survival and replication most of the time, generally speaking, something like that. 
Would he understand what human emotions are now? No. <laughs> okay. What I would do is I'd call up an Excel spreadsheet and I'd give him a list of things. This lump, when this hole in this lump goes up, that's what the earthling is likely to do next. When this hole in this lump goes down, especially watch these wormy things here. If they do that, run. So I'd give him a list of all the possible emotion actions and he'd know what to do next. He still wouldn't understand human emotions in the sense of experiencing them, but he would know what to do with them. What is trauma? So you ask the question, doesn't it, it pervades the whole development. What is trauma? How would you describe that? I think uh, trauma would be a stuck, a stuck response. I don't think it's necessarily the response that's the problem. It's the inability to either relax the response. One gets stuck into some sort of re response towards something that's no longer actually occurring. So you're sort of walking around as if it's happening very subtly or relate but to things as if they're happening very subtly, something like that. Right. Yeah, it's a good definition, except it's useless. <laughs> Sorry to say that. I define emotions as actions you do in your body. Feelings are what those actions feel like when you, to the person experiencing them. Trauma is not a noun. It is in English, but it isn't. It's not an object. It's a constellation of actions you do in the body. So if I learned that looking to the right is going to get me hit, I'll always look to the left. And if I keep looking to the left and I'm constantly living out the experience that I had in the trauma, in the, in the initial assault, I am continuing to do in my body what I did then because I learned I had to do it. So trauma is not a noun, it's a learned constellation of behaviors. So where does your lap go when you stand up? It doesn't go anywhere. You don't have a lap when you stand up. This may sound strange, but if you stop doing one emotion and start doing another, you're not doing the first one while you're doing the second one. So what I try to do is, I, you're right, it pervades everything because it's a learning. Kannst du etwas Deutsch sprechen? Ein bisschen. Okay, ich spreche vielleicht ein bisschen besser. Okay, if you don't know a language, you can learn it, right? If you grow up in an English-speaking country, English pervades your whole ex experience of life. If you go somewhere else, you can learn it and relearn it and it's, it'll be different. So it's not that I have to pry apart everything that happened. I just have to create power and kindness in the place where they don't have it. And then they will start to rejigger all their responses to other things because now they have new resources. So I know that when you studied philosophy, from what I understand, you, you worked a lot with language. Mm -hmm. So I fell there twice into your definitional trap. Yes, of course. We went into a different different ways of, of defining the word definition, I suppose. Can, can you yes. illustrate the trap that I fell into there and, and why, it is that, um, why it is that you take the, the position you do on that? If you say trauma as a noun, people are traumatized because terrible things were done to them. It makes it sound as though there's an object that has to be changed. If, if people... Can you traumatize a corpse? I suppose in the medical sense, if you damage the tissues, it depends on what you mean by trauma. Exactly. If you, you can't change the person's behavior, they're, they're meditating, they're going to stay still no matter what you do. But if you traumatize a live person, you have taught them 
No, they have learned something about their, their own capacities and the world. And if you change their capacities, they begin to change how they are in the world. Now, the trap you fell into is, I call it the nounish fallacy. You're, you're reifying a process and turning it into a noun. Trauma does this. No, trauma doesn't do anything. Trauma is the name of a constellation of things you do. If your brother, if somebody stepped on your pet turtle, what would you feel? Sad, angry, guilty. And where would you feel that? Where would I feel it? That, that's a strange question. I'm supposed to sympathize with your feelings of anger and sadness. But I, I say, where are you doing anger and sadness in your body? And once you know where, you can change it if you wish, if you have some extra tools. See why I call it the nounish fallacy. If, if, this, if, if somebody put a knife into your chest, the knife is not a verb, it's an object. It goes in and it cuts you. But if you take something that's a behavior and make a noun out of it, you think it can be pulled out like a knife or something, but it isn't. It, it blinds you to the fact that there's things you're doing and that you could do things differently if you had different resources. Very interesting. I know you've worked with lots of different sorts of abuse situations or people who've been in lots of different abuse situations. I'm wondering if you have any specific insights or anecdotes from particular areas of abuse. For, for instance, you talked about the Holocaust mm -hmm. and... Um, I suppose that would be multi, what would that be, epigenetic uh, or multi-generational uh, situation yes. there? Um, yes. Is there anything specific in, in insights you specifically gained there? You're in, in, I know you've worked in Germany and there's sort of two sides of that. There are the, there are the descendants of the victims and then there are descendants of the perpetrators who, who themselves, it seems, can have a certain sense of um, group guilt based on yes, the actions of they, their predecessors. Mm. They're, all, they're all victims. Even the perpetrators were victims. But, um, okay, I can give you one anecdote. The first time I taught Aikido in Germany, it was at a university. And afterwards, being at a university that had great physical education facilities, we all went in to take a shower. And I stepped into the group showers and I froze. I hadn't expected that. Do you know why I froze? I can guess, yeah. Yeah, because somewhere I knew as a piece of information that the Jews were taken off the boxcars and put into showers and gassed. But I didn't know that it had entered my body that way and that I would have that reaction. Another friend of mine who was at, the, uh, at a, another conference was on a train. He was taking a train to someplace, and he was in the car looking out the window it was an express train, and he saw all the Germans lined up on the express on the platform waiting for the local, and he froze because he had it, being Jewish also, in his bones that the, the Germans watched the Jews being herded into the cattle cars and taken off. I don't know how those things are transmitted to create such a deep effect, but they are, and they... You have to work with them. If you don't, you, you, you transmit it down through the generations. We're seeing right now in the States, President Trump offering violence as a solution to the black 
um, insurrection, really. And he, he's offering to do more to them of what has been done to help them feel better, I guess. But it's, a, it's an easy mistake to make, especially if you think that power is powerful. What do you mean by that statement, power is powerful? And what would you do in his shoes if you were in his shoes now? I'd love to be in his shoes. Um, the first thing I'd do is I'd say, look, we're all screwed. This country was founded on genocide and slavery, and we're living with the results. We have to speak about that, turn our bodies towards a different way of speaking, so that you, if you accuse and feel angry, you're helping the other side feel angry back. Uh, we all have to take responsibility for our own bodies, and we have to do something better than what has been done. And better doesn't mean throwing money at it or throwing more cops at it. It means we have to recognize that we're all humans in the same way. And when I say um, slavery, you can't afford to let that rule your body, nor can I. So I would start by saying we have to feel and let ourselves be vulnerable. Um, the more vulnerable you are, the less you can be penetrated. Does that make sense? No. Everybody wants to do this to, to stay defensive and pr protected, right? But if you're tight and protecting yourself this way, you can be poked or punched anywhere, but you can't move. If you're like this, you're free to block. So the, the, the experience that I come from is the more available you are, the less available you are. So you have to be available because some, somebody has to start somewhere. We can't all wait for the other guy to start. Um, I'm not saying any particular person should start, but I'm saying if I were in Trump's shoes, I'd say, I, look, I've got to take responsibility. Um, in my case, my ancestors were in the Ukraine being shot during slavery, but uh, I, I've inherited the culture by growing up here, so I have to deal with it. And I, don't, I can't imagine Trump saying that, or many politicians. It seems one of the narratives is that indignation or um, response of either indignation, rage, or guilt, depending on where you are placed, uh, depending on whatever various factors you identify with, I suppose, or you're assigned, is the moral response to the injustice. And you're saying yeah. you can't afford to let a word such as slavery rule the body. Can you, can you unpick that? Yes. Um, what would you do? If do you have a, a female in your family somewhere? Yeah. What would you do if that were sold? That female were sold for um, hamburger meat. Would you feel comfortable eating at McDonald's or wherever they use hamburgers? Probably not. There were actual instances in the 1800s of ships chandlers stalking long pig. They call it in salted meat casks for the whaling ships. Long long pig was humans that they caught on the street, dressed down for ship stores. People do things like that, but it doesn't help to get into feeling about that. You ha you'd have to look at the person and, well, how, how do I say it? What would it be like to live inside the skin of somebody who, can only who, could, only, who could relate to other humans only by pickling them for meat? That would be hell on, the, on earth, I would imagine. So it's not that anybody is happy with the results and just have different ways of living out the, the trauma.
but that's something that you have to do. You have to say, let's talk about it. Let's look at what happens. How does power, in our cultural definition, create the separateness and the dehumanization? I think power and love, well, the phrase I often use is power without love is brutality. Love without power is ineffective. So do you want to be ineffective or brutal? It's a, it's a dumb question. You shouldn't be either. You should try to integrate the power with the love. And then you've got enough power to not hate and to work at fixing things. So is one of the keys that I'm hearing there an ability to put yourself in the perspective of the other person, even if the other person is the perpetrator? I don't know. I hadn't thought about that exactly. A lot of people do Aikido in metaphor. You turn, you put yourself in the same direction as the attacker, you see what he sees or she, and I don't tend to do that. I'm more, I'm probably one of the few physiological Aikidoists. I look at what the body is doing inside and say, let's alter that. And then when people have altered that, they will come up with something that works better for themselves. I, I know that people like couple people, Tom Crum and Ter Terry, Terry, I forget his name, he, but there, there are much more famous examples of people who use the Aikido physical movements as metaphors, but they don't tend to go into the physiology as I have. I'm not saying one is better or worse, but the metaphors are obviously far more understandable as, as ways of changing your behavior. The reason I asked you if that was a key to your technique is when you said imagine being a sort of person who can only relate to others by yeah. picketing them you know that that's why I was wondering if that's an operation that you do in your method um yes it is in a way I I graduated I titrated I don't come in there and swing a baseball bat at somebody first off I might start with um hi what what are you here for and um, I'd say well and I'd look at them and maybe that well and that look would be, what's he doing? What's he going to do? And then I'd deconstruct it. And at some point, I'd throw tissues at them. At some point, I'd have them throw, pick up the tissue and throw it back. And how do you feel when you do that? Um, aggressive. Okay, well, can you throw it with, with a sense of love? But love is so weak. Well, try it this way. And how does that feel? Gee, I can throw it harder when I feel loving, of course. And then we say, we discuss why. And it's a long, slow process to build up what has to be done and how you can do it effectively. But in the end, um, almost always I work with the, the role play of what actually happened. So I had a client once who was raped by her cousins when she was little, and she was in mid-20s when, uh, when she worked with me. And after the first session, her mother phoned me, and I couldn't talk to her mother without it. Um, assigned release from the person, but she said, you touched my daughter. I said, of course I did. I teach self-defense. I have to touch her to teach. And I described generically what I do. And she said, it sounds reasonable. If you hurt her, I'm going to have your head. I said, you should. Okay. So we went along. Then it came time to do the self-defense five or six months later. She brought her mother in for, I always ask people to bring in a, an umpire or a chaperone or whatever you call it. And I showed the woman how to escape a pin by not touching her, just by doing it. Then I said, would you like to try it? And I, she said, yes. So I 
lay down on top of her, started choking her, and she threw me off. I, I sailed halfway across the room, and she sat up with this great big smile and said, let's do it again. And we did it a few more times. She sat up, and she, was, she had this glorious smile, and she was free by her own efforts, not by somebody else helping her. And her mother, with tears down her face, said, now I know why you work the way you do. But until then, she, she had never experienced anything like it. One thing I'm hearing a lot, seeing as we're on the topic of the current situation in America, as it is in yeah. uh, June 2020, I'm hearing some people say, love uh, hasn't worked. Well, they don't say that exactly. They say, peace, doesn't, peace hasn't worked. Right. Um, now is the time for, insert uh, whatever they think it's the time for. What would you say to people who are concerned that love, peace is not strong enough to protect oneself or to ensure one is not uh, treated in the same way as before. Love, I've heard someone said that peace and love are not inconvenient enough to the perpetrator to make them change. I've heard that kind of thing. And the thing we have to do is inconvenience those who benefit from the system of so and so forth to the extent that um, it's uncomfortable enough for them to change. If they're not uncomfortable, they won't change. I'm hearing this sort of narrative a lot. How does that well, strike you? Right. Well, they're right. But remember, I, a few moments ago, I said, love without power is ineffective. Power without love is brutality. Love in John Lennon's, all we need is love. Da, 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 da. Um, there are many philosophies of love and mercy, but without power, you can't do anything with them. Power, I think, is the ability to exert control over what happens to you. There are many ways of doing it. There are many levels of it. But power without love is usually unethical. Love without power is useless. But if you join the experience of love and power, if I were there, I could show you in very clear experience what it feels like to do a powerful movement lovingly. Actually, maybe we could do that right now. Let me, let me get something. I'll be right back. Oh, I have it here. Okay. This is a good example. Do you have a towel handy? Okay. This usually happens at the halfway through a workshop. So we'll see if we can jump into it. Okay, put the towel in both hands behind your back and hit something, a chair, whatever that's safe in front of you. Okay, I can see you're a movement person. You hit from the hip sockets, that's good. Can you hit with a spirit of anger? What does that do in your body? It feels kind of good, actually. Mm -hmm. It feels okay, what the, energizing, yeah, what but it definitely do? makes me want to hit some more. Okay, and what does... You notice you haven't answered my question. You said it feels good, but what are you doing? How does the movement change when you do it angrily? I feel... Uh, in the aftermath, I feel tension in my hips and uh, tension in my arms and in my torso and a tingling on my skin. That, okay. that seems to want to see it would seem to if I was to let it go I would hit again from that right okay can you start from the same position and feel love in your body whatever you did whatever you thought of to feel love now let's suggest that you do much the same movement you hit the chair or whatever but you do it in a flowing sweeping loving fast way can you do that with still power? Yeah, I don't know. Let's see what happens when you do it fast and soft and hard. Fast and soft and hard. Okay. 
what happens. Oddly enough, I think the kinetic chain was more better. Yes, it was. Yeah. I could see it and you could hear it. What did you hear different about the strike? It, it, def it felt uh, greater penetration, more solid strike. Okay, so if you're going to strike, would you want one that felt good in the sense of being tight and useless? Or would you want one that would actually do the job that you needed to do? Yeah, and in the aftermath, I think I can tell that a lot of my first angry strike actually ended up in my body. Yes, of course. <laughs> the tension and the energy yeah. I felt was, I think, the energy of my strike in my body, whereas now I feel like I've discharged the power of the strike into the into the chair. That seems to be a difference. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Do you know what operational definitions are? I think it's yeah. the way you define a term based on... Um, based on its function or something like this. Yeah, quantifiable, measurable, observable, concrete. Okay, so if I were to be studying liking of cherry pie, how would I define liking cherry pie? What you mean by it is the guy looks at it, more, 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 but that doesn't tell, give you anything measurable that you can work with. If you define liking cherry pie as eating a three-ounce slice twice a day for six months, that guy likes cherry pie. Now, we could quibble about how much and how often, but what I'm doing is substituting for what I really mean, the, the mental equivalent. I'm substituting a behavior that's observable and quantifiable. That's an operational definition. Notice that when I defined love, I didn't talk philosophy. I said, do this, do this, what do you feel in your body? That's an operational definition. Now, what I do is I teach people, my students, how to reframe actions in the body as beliefs about the self in the world. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you're doing this, I don't just say, here, you're tightening your shoulders. I say, I help them dig out what its job is, what it means to them. Then we've got an operational way of setting up a belief to test. Does it work well or not, which we just did. I don't say, no, you should be softer and more loving. I described how to do something, and you felt that it was more powerful. So I think of... That, that is essentially the scientific method. You don't go on beliefs and gurus. You go on testing of the concrete action. And if you do that, people can experience, oh, I, I thought love was this. That isn't love. That's weakness. And I thought power was that. That isn't power. That's anger. But if you do, them, if you do the things that I'm teaching, that's why it took me 50 years to figure out what to do and to make it simple enough that others could. But power and love are inseparable. And if I may uh, say something that's not exactly PC, a great slogan, one of the two best slogans to come out of the 60s, fighting for peace is like fucking for chastity. You ever hear that one? Mm -hmm. it's, that's what we're talking about. You can't fight and love. You can love and protect yourself or do what you need to do. But if you're just involved in the power aspect, that's fighting and violent. If you're just involved in the love aspect, I suppose that's better, but not what I would wish. I just had a light bulb there. I think anyone who's listening or watching should try that because one of the, the lingering question was when you're angry and you want revenge or you want to act forcefully in some way, whether it's defensive or offensive, why on earth would somebody like that want to... to even experiment with feeling love and then acting. It seems like you'd be giving away the source of your power, which is the 
which is the emotional grievance or the emotional charge inside that makes you want to do the act. If I start feeling love, maybe I'll become passive. But then the interesting thing is when I tried it, I could tell there's such a difference in the force transfer that if my motive was to really hit that chair, for whatever reason, it's wrong me somehow. It's a very convincing demonstration because if I really am motivated to hit the chair, I need to let go of the anger, feel the love, and then I can really hit the chair. But then at the same time, that totally changes the range of options that I'm willing to consider in terms of my action because now I'm no longer held by the anger. I've got this loving feeling. I can still do the act if I want, but it opens up a whole range of more creative possibilities that I previously wouldn't have even considered for fear of loosening the hold on the anger, which is, which is I need the anger. That's my power. That's what we're all taught, and it's not true. But remember, I've already described that exercise. I talked about cracking the woman's staff in half, but it didn't make nearly as much of an impression as doing it yourself. Exactly. And I've got, after 50 years, I've got hundreds of these things, exercises that will go towards one point or another. What I've done is my first attempt at simplification was a book called Reach Out. It was about 70 pages. And I realized that wasn't simple enough yet. It took too much time, not, not nearly as time as it took me to learn it. But So I came up with something that's five exercises long. It's about six or seven pages. And it gets across, in a way, almost everything I've learned in 50 years, but much more quickly so people can use it. Um, it's not quite as deep as 50 years of practice, I think, but it's good enough to save the world and being a card-carrying almost hippie, I'm still trying to save the world. But you see, what I've done is to isolate the factors that enable you to do what you just experienced. And uh, I think that's very powerful and loving. Paul Linden, thank you very much. Thank you. I must say, this is the, by far the best interview I've ever had. You, you managed to pick out the key stuff in, in 50 years of experience and get it elucidated quickly and clearly. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.